Nonetheless, guys, this is Siren Sundays being very innovative with Mark Daniels. <laughs> Holla. Hey, everybody. So I'm hoping people can hear you. Let me actually cut my fan off to make that a little easier. So today we are talking about which pine is fine. Um, Mark, we've had you on the show before, but if you could just quickly say who you are again. One of my favorite botanists in the Bahamas. Ethan, too. <laughs> but both of y'all. Yes, the great Dr. E. Um, so, hi everybody, my name is Mark Daniels. I am a botanist by training. Um, I spent a lot of time working in the uh, native uh, habitats of the Bahamas. I work with the Bahamas National Trust, the Leon DV Native Plant Preserve. Um, I love all things plants. And so, uh, one of the things I love to do while working with BNT and the preserve was chop down castorina trees. Um, and not just because it's fun. <laughs> uh, it's because it's it's necessary, um, definitely, in certain habitats. So I'm happy to come and talk about all things Casarina and promote our Bahamian pine. Lovely. Okay. So things seem to be up and running. Hey, Fallon. Hey, Batancy. So just to speed through, I know we've lost so much time with these technical difficulties, but the mandem can't keep us down. We are here and we are doing it. So a lot of people... Um, Look at the Casarina tree that line our beaches that are basically everywhere. I feel like you cannot take a few steps in near any coppice forest or any coastline without seeing the Casarina tree. But can you just quickly tell everyone the two species of Casarina, because I think people think it's only one, that are invasive in the Bahamas and just what an invasive species is, especially in the terrestrial environment? Okay, um, well, I guess I'll just start with invasive species. So um, when you hear the word invasive, um, it it doesn't refer to the origin of that plant. It refers to its growth habit and its reproductive capability. Uh, usually the term described is invasive alien species, and that describes uh, plants that are uh, non-native to the Bahamas that have this invasive uh, kind of growth habit. So Castorina falls into uh, that category of an invasive alien species. Uh, we have a number of species that are native to the Bahamas that may be weedy, uh, but it tends to, to more often be that alien species or exotic species are introduced to a new environment, and now we're talking about the Bahamas as a new environment, that they would exhibit invasive behavior where they uh, reduce uh, the biodiversity of the habitats that they uh, colonize, um, and they usually do it in a way where they're either overwhelming the native uh, flora or fauna that's there, or actively suppressing them through some sort of chemical means, physical means, or whatnot. Uh, so in the Bahamas, our two uh, species of Castorina is Castorina equicetifolia, um, and then there's Castorina glauca. Um, so interestingly enough, the genus Castorina uh, was given to the plant uh, to signify its drooping uh, quote unquote leaves, which resemble the cassowary bird. So I don't know if you guys have seen a picture of this large flightless bird with kind of like a blue, kind of like a blue face. And, um, and so it's a shaggy black feathered bird and the, the feathers of that bird are droopy. And so it having the genus, I would say Cassora, I, I'm not a, a ornithologist, so don't, don't quote me directly. But the name Castorina refers to the droopy feathers of the Castorina bird. Mm -hmm. um, and Echisetifolia uh, refers to um, 
the, the nature of the quote-unquote leaves uh, to look like that of the horsetail plant. Um, and if you Google um, Echisetia, you'll see uh, how that resembles the castorina leaves. So usually these are the ones that are the lighter, I guess one of you of green, a bit more erect um, leaves and branches. Uh, the other, castorina glauca, tends to be uh, a bit darker um, in the leaves and has more of a droopy appearance. Um, it has the leaves a bit more dense and they sucker at the root more readily. Mm. Awesome. And I think the first time I actually saw, and I'm going to call it Casarina G because I think Glauca, Glauca? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, the first time I actually saw one of those was on the island of Eleuthera. It was actually in an area, it was almost like a dirt road. And when I saw it, I was like, what the heck? We actually have two species of Casarina. Because is there a reason for that, you think, that we see the Equi-E, the Casarina-E more? <laughs> um, I'm not... Not knowing, um, I go into an in-depth discussion, discussion, I guess, of the biology, but um, it tends to be that the Casarina glauca, especially on Eleuthera, if you go into Roxanne, you can see that uh, tends to be more along the roadsides, um, Casarina exenopolia along the coastline, whether or not they have different salt tolerances, um, I'm not aware of, uh, but I'm not a, I didn't study Casarina all my life. <laughs> um, however, the plant in and of itself is... Uh, tolerant of poor soils um, and one of the reasons that it's utilized in other countries and other places around the world as a plantation tree uh, you have places where they plant uh, plantations of gasarina to use it for fuel wood um, for posts and pilings uh, basic construction material um, and the reason it's used because the plant uh, gasarina fixes nitrogen in its roots so you can plant it in poor soils and it will add nitrogen to it that will help to feed into the, those castorina population. So that's why they love our beaches uh, where uh, there is some nutrition there, but it's not as um, rich as you would say the coppice forest. So between in being able to take advantage of uh, poor soils and also the dynamic nature of the coastline, uh, they love disturbances. So whether it's a part of the coastline that's been recently washed away in a storm or it's a coastal area of land that's been bulldozed. Um, the, the castorina will find itself uh, in, in those in those habitat. That's interesting, especially when you mentioned the part about it being um, used on plantations. How do you know the history? Like, how did castorinas even get to the Bahamas? Who brought them here, and why? Who brought them? I'm not pointing fingers, um, but uh, it's. You know, this research has been done. It said Casarina was the first introduced to the West Indies in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, when you read the documentation on it, it's one, it was used as a way to, to stabilize uh, dual coastal ecosystems, uh, but also just used as a source wood for fuel and construction materials. Uh, it's also been documented its uh, introduction to Florida uh, for those same purposes, especially for stabilizing dunes. Um, at its young state, in its younger years, the roots uh, forms a nice tap root, which, uh, if planted in, uh, I guess, a, a specified design, would add some stability to a, a dune system that is, I guess, uh, devoid of plants or any other structure. And because sand would basically be inert or very uh, low in nutrients, it was an ideal candidate. 
once they get larger, um, the, their root structure changes, the, their weight uh, on the root changes, and those sandy stuff, substrates and the coastlines uh, are unable to hold those roots in the ground and keep that tree upright. So that's why uh, in rough weather you tend to see erosion happening beneath the roots and eventually trees tend to topple over in, in rough storms. So the story is it was brought in to do something good and then it broke out wide after that. As most of these bad things happen, they are always with good intentions initially, right? Whoever's yeah, good intention. Both, both, the seed, <laughs> both the pollen and the seed are spread by the wind. Um, and so whether or not somebody brought a plant over and planted it somewhere on Grand Bahama or that through wind dispersal, some seeds found its way over to the Grand Bahama shoreline and was that the beginning of it? Who knows? Um, because there are some parts of, uh, there's some islands in the southern Bahamas that have no castorino. And whether that's because uh, they the seeds haven't traveled that far or the habitats are not accommodating enough. Uh, you have rougher shorelines, uh, not as much sandy beaches. Uh, the, 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 when you go south, the vegetation there, they go through a lot more. And so maybe that's the reason. But if you go far south in the, in the Bahama archipelago, you'll find some islands and keys that have no castorina. Very few. I mean, everything rough in the south, eh? <laughs> I feel like you gotta be you gotta be tough to live to survive in the sun. Definitely. Um, yeah. Yeah, and you know, and really quickly on the point about seed dispersal, so people are aware the seed is that is it in the little cone piece that drops on the ground and stabs you in your foot? <laughs> yeah. So that uh, cone-like structure will contain up to thousands of seeds, and uh, you'll see the the parts that stick you. Uh, you know, when they're closed, there's a little suture line that ruptures and releases the seed. So it's a very prolific seeder, which is usually one of the features of uh, any invasive alien species, is that their reproductive capability um, it outpowers or outperforms, or however you want to describe it, that of the native species. Um, so Castorina is, is, is one of them. Seeds a lot. Hmm. Nice. And I know you mentioned quickly how it stabilized the dune when it was in, when it's younger it's a taproot so it can stabilize then but as it gets older it's very detrimental that's what you said right yeah so just the, the, the structure of the trees against all of those roots uh in in our climate where we have thin soils mm -hmm. uh those the root structure will remain mostly at the surface if you were to plant a cassari in a tree in the middle of Australia or Brazil or somewhere else where the, the soil conditions are different, they're not as acidic, they're deeper, the water table is, is different, then those roots would, would grow differently. And uh, documentation of plantations on uh, sites in um, Africa and in Australia and parts of Asia have shown that the morphology slightly changes. So for us, we when, when castorina grows here, there's this shallow root system that doesn't penetrate very deep. And the common name, is, common name for this is Australian pine, right? Uh, Australian pine, beefwood, uh, <laughs> she oak, uh, there's, there's beach pine, there's, 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 a, there's a number of names for it. And then over, you know, here in the Bahamas, most people, they call it cedar. Are you serious? Yeah, and so not to be confused with cedars and the juniper, uh, botanically that's what we would understand cedar to be, but that's the thing with common names. They, they change from place to place. So most people would look at those and call them cedar. Right, and I know 
I'm gonna have to plug this in here and I feel like my friend who was with me this day is watching I've already not liked invasive species but after doing five seconds of a walkathon and spraining my ankle on a casserina tree root I've become very adamant about the <laughs> removal of casserina trees and I know that when I think it happened off the eastern road the government cut down like a bunch of casserina trees and people were like there was an uproar because everyone was like why would you take away these great trees that we love having here can you can you maybe justify why that was good ecologically and maybe suggest are there better trees that we can put there I mean there should be but what are the better trees that we can put there to kind of achieve the same concept of the shade minus all the needles and the sticky cones and seed dispersers yeah um, so you know what you're seeing there is similar to what would have happened uh, at Saunders Beach uh, a number of years back when those casserina trees were being removed and what you saw was a uh, kind of a I would say a clash but a, an opposition of views from those who are thinking of the biology and the ecology um, exclusive of the human interaction and those who are mainly thinking of the human or the sentimental uh, value of these trees. So most of us who have grown up in the Bahamas who are less than 50, 60 years old uh, have, you know, a, a, I guess an ingrained image of Castorinas being the, the tree that's on the beach. If nobody told you that it was invasive, you wouldn't know because um, like the shifting baseline uh, concept describes is that when when you become aware when you were born your beginning starts then and you only really refer to that point where you started and if, unless you search back in history then you won't you won't understand what the baseline was before you got there so for us who are born on these islands and we met the trees here we have a different perspective than someone who maybe was living here before the first uh, Castorina even arrived before the sand dunes or the coastlines were altered from this invasive species. Um, so when you go on the beach, yeah, first of all, it's shade, you know? Yeah. So that's always a great thing. Um, the sound that we hear, the wind going through the Casarina trees, a lot of people associate that that's the sound of the beach. Um, most people wouldn't realize that that's actually the sound you're hearing when you sit in Goodman's Bay. It's just the sound of the, the wind blowing through the trees. And so that's, <laughs> that's, that's an aesthetic that people enjoy. Um, from a ecological standpoint, you know, we discussed earlier how invasive alien species impact biodiversity, um, and the functional side of that is, in a, in a coastal environment, those plants, those native species, you know, those sea grape and railroad vine, and your sea oats, and bay lavender, and all those other plants that grow in that coastal environment, those are the plants whose root systems will help to stabilize that dune. Uh, those are the plants that this is the environment they thrive in, they grow in, and they have a function and a purpose. Uh, once, whether it's Castorina or some other, um, I guess, factor removes it from the dune, it, it destabilizes it. And in this, uh, in this time where hurricanes are increasing or the strength of them increasing or the unpredictability of it, just over time, rough weather has, has in conjunction with the loss of the diversity in the coastal ecosystems, have led to coastal erosion. And you can look at certain parts of Grand Bahama, if you look at satellite imagery, where if you look back 20 years ago, the coastline in some parts of the southern, on the southern shoreline of Grand Bahama was 10, 20 feet further out than when it was now, some places even more so. Uh, we do understand that coastal systems are dynamic. There's a process of 
accretion and erosion that happens naturally throughout the year as the seasons change. However, ecologically on the land, you can see the impact of the gasoline. So for Eastern Road, um, that was definitely a, 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 I guess, a project where the aesthetic value of those trees was really high. Mostly uh, because the drive along Eastern Road is usually a very nice drive, a scenic drive for people to drive along. Yeah. Um, whether or not a tree is invasive, you know, we as humans, we like vegetation. We like to see nice, you know, we like to see old growth trees. It's, it's just something about it that, um, that feels good. And if, when you go to a landscape that is devoid of trees and devoid of vegetation, um, that's, you know, you, you feel that when you see that. And so for those who have lived along Eastern Road and driven there along that road every day for multiple years to and from school, uh, the shade of the trees during the daytime when you drive to school, there's no sun in your eye. All that stuff <laughs> is now changed, right? So you have to understand the human side of it, mm-hmm. but also ecologically. And so if you look at parts of the Eastern Road where you see that pretty much there's no sun, uh, the, the high water mark is feet away from the road. Um, and in storms, you've seen where other trees along that shoreline have toppled over. And so at this point, it's... It's, it's not just about cutting down the casserina trees. The approach would be to rebuild the ecology of that system so that you're providing that protection uh, to the habitats and the stakeholders that would be impacted by this lack of doing. Now, we also understand along the southern uh, shores of the Bahamas, uh, sorry, southern shores of Nassau, that the dune system tends to be lower. You find more of the sandy, higher dune beaches along the north shore of the island. So we don't expect there to be 30 foot dunes on the Eastern Road because, you know, there's not 30 foot dunes at South Ocean or in the back of Sea Breeze. Um, there's a number of things that could have also attributed to that, the way we build and the way we clear down coastlines and um, what we do with wetlands. So all these things factor in. So for cutting down the trees on uh, Eastern Road, that should be an exercise of we're moving these trees with a plan to improve the ecology of these habitats to prevent further coastal erosion. To me, that would be the objective. Um, There are also just some parts of that road that um, you probably will not get much vegetation there. You know, you're you're pretty much sitting on dog tooth limestone. Um, It's being inundated during high tide and rough weather. And so a part of that is just also where that road was positioned initially, um, maybe wasn't the best place. And so these types of discussions can happen all across the Bahamas in coastal environments and how Castorinas affect roads, utilities, and housing. Right. And so I want to try to tie two points in one to then segue into our beloved native pine. So the biggest, in my opinion, and I think it is, the biggest issue that we have with Castorina, one, it's a very strong tree. As you said, the wood is very, I guess, dense is the correct term, very strong. And because the roots are so shallow, when we have things like hurricanes come, the damage, not only to just the coast, which is very important, also to potential houses in the area is so high that I think a lot of Bahamians need to understand that if we still keep it very human-centric, either way it's a win-win because you need to get these out because it, it can cause a lot of danger, especially with things like climate change and we have all these super storms happening. So to segue into the native pine, where are they most commonly found and how how do they stand up in regards to their root system when these kind of storms come in so our pine 
Baja Bahama Pine. Our pine is Caribbean <laughs> and variety Baja Mensis. Um, so you you tend to find pine on what we call the freshwater islands, um, which would be the four northern islands, the Grand Bahama, Abaco, Andres, and New Providence. Um, North Eleuther is similar in habitat to the to the those water islands, those freshwater islands, but there are no pine in North Eleuthera. Hmm. Um, and then you skip through the entire chain, the rest of the chain of Bahamas, and you go to our cousins, Turks and Caicos, and then you find populations of pine there. So there's this kind of a little uh, uh, anomaly there um, in the biogeography of pine. It's been explored by different researchers. Um, so yes, the pine, they love freshwater environments, and not that they're sitting in standing freshwater, but they are they're in areas where the fresh water table is high, um, or the water table is high within inches of the surface in some cases. And so for Grand Bahama, Abaco, New Providence, Andres, uh, they are large freshwater lenses that support populations of pine, or uh, pine forests. Um, those roots get well anchored. Um, they go down through that uh, dog tooth limestone to access the water. They would not have to travel as deep. Um, they are uh, instances where you see pine trees just uprooted from uh, the ground during storms, and so you don't see that central tap root uh, that that anchors it down in the middle, unless that snaps off. I'd, I'd have to double check my root morphology. <laughs> However, um, you know, conceptually, pine should stand up well to hurricane because pine, as a species or a, a genus or whatever, I guess as a family, they they're not heavily branching so you look at a pine tree you see that a majority of its trunk um, is naked without any side branching and then you get some lateral branches towards the crown of the tree uh, that means that during a heavy storm that the wind has less surface area to push on when it for the pine um, this is all conceptual that hurricane dorian rewrote the book for us um climate change with, with the pine <laughs> being yeah being a heavy in resin and sap then it has a certain amount of bendability, you want to call it, uh, where a pliability where it can bend and sway with the wind uh, without snapping. Um, the real issue when it comes to storms with our pine forest is saltwater inundation of pine plants. So you have areas where pine forests, they abut very closely to marine environments. Uh, you can go to places, uh, in, once again, I keep calling it Grand Bahama, uh, Queen's Cove, where you can look across the canal, and there, as you step up off of the canal, you walk into Pineland, and that's and you, that transition you can see in many places in Andros and Abaco, and you can see the line where you go from a saltwater, brackish water habitat straight into Pine Park. Mm -hmm. During a storm, when you have uh, storm surges and saltwater getting into these habitats, pine does not deal with salt very well, and so. Uh, Pine tend to tend to be large die-off of pine um, in areas where there's been uh, extreme flooding um, after a storm and water has sat and settled for a number of days. Depending on how long that water has settled, it will kill not only the standing pine but all of the seeds that and seedlings that may have been starting to germinate. And so, what you see happening is this mass die-off of pine. And if the pine forests are rejuvenated, then it begins to get taken over by coppice, uh, coppice forest species or invasive species. Yeah, um, definitely. 
So I, I guess it's sad to say that that's where the Castorina kind of have our pines beat, where they can grow very close into the salt water and the sand, as opposed to our native pines are more inland on those freshwater lands. Yeah, they will. They'll be, you know, the pine and other species that like uh, that thrive in those pine areas. Uh, thatch bob, they love uh, fresh water as well. Uh, there being an abundance of fresh water around, uh, so you start to get the ferns and a number of interesting ground orchids. Um, in the pine forest, and it's all due to the to the to the waterlands. Yeah, and once again, there's another tree that just cannot survive the south. <laughs> it's right. rough down there. So, and yeah. I know um, something that I actually had found out a couple of years ago when I started working at BNT that I I'm not sure a lot of Bahamians knew was that we actually had like a logging industry with our pine, and from the dates that I like quickly found from 1905 until right before independence. So. Do you do you know about the that era of the Bahamas where we actually had a different industry going on? Yeah, um, you know, in that time there were a number of different industries that were uh, happening. Um, anything from also the farming uh, industry, whether it was dairy, uh, cows, or citrus. You mean not um, only tourism? <laughs> right. Exactly. You know. <laughs> Um, yes, and so for, for logging, yeah, logging was um, was active in the early 1900s in Abaco, Andres, Grand Bahama. Um, I'm sure it happened in Nassau. Um, I just can't recall the reference from. It apparently you know, wasn't from wasn't as popular in New Providence. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So you know, and they, the, what's been said has happened was their strategy for cutting was clear cutting the forest and really only leaving behind the trees that were not desirable for market or for production, uh, which is opposite to what uh, sustainable forestry management principles would speak to, which is that when you're harvesting, you actually want to look for some of the best looking trees and that you intentionally leave those behind so that you're ensuring the genetic diversity of that population is intact. And so when that mother tree then seeds, then you're looking for that next succession to have similar or the same characteristics as the mother plant mm-hmm. or the mother tree, which if it was a nice straight trunk, uh, rot resistant, no disease, all that stuff, then then the next generations of pine would have should have followed suit as long as you maintain that methodology. Right. When you clear cut and you leave behind the, the stragglers, um, then the, the genetic pool uh, is not as broad, uh, so to speak, um, in, in terms of its fitness. And then at the same time, you also just had, since the, since the forests were clear cut pretty much at the same time, you also had dispersal of seed from those trees happening pretty much at the same time. Hmm. So what you see now in our current uh, pine forest is, a, is, I guess, the epitome of competition where you the, our forests are overcrowded uh, with pine individuals, and they're all competing for the same amount of water, food, and light resources. Right. So if we're all in a room, if you pack a hundred of us in a room, um, and we're all eating off of one piece of food, you know, we're only going to get, I guess, one one hundredth of that right. food. So we're all going to show signs of wasting, and we're not going to go to our full potential. Right. But if you put two of us in there, and it's only two of us sharing off of that big plate, we'll get nice and fat. So same <laughs> concept with the forest. Right. So, you, you need to thin the forest to allow the resources to be shared equally between 
the individual so that everyone has a chance to grow to their full potential, which then increases the value of the products if you're going for lumber uh, once you harvest. And so that's all a part of sustainable forestry management, which I know the Department of Forestry has been actively uh, pursuing and doing its research and engaging groups uh, who are looking to help uh, manage the pine forest, because especially after Hurricane Dorian, there's been a number of areas that have been devastated in terms of the pine reserves, broken trees, um, completely uprooted, and not only has it damaged the, the populations, but it's also wasted the resource. Mm-hmm. And so right now, um, you would have persons that are harvesting um, dead pine to process and utilize, whether it's in the agriculture industry, uh, landscaping industry, whatever products they may use, Right now, that's something that uh, is a wasted resource that the, the hurricane has, has added to our list, I guess, of wasted resources from that storm. Right. And I know another thing that I read uh, about our pine is that it was used to make turpentine from the sap? Turpentine. Am I saying that right? Yeah, turpentine. And, and for the people, what is turpentine? Boy, uh, y'all need to get a chemical... Um, <laughs> A chemist on air, right? But now, well, what's it used for? As young as a young kid, as you get turpentine, there's paint in them, right? So you have this big can of turpentine, you use <laughs> the paint, and so it's pretty much a solvent, right? Fascinating. Um, and apart from that, there are any number of chemicals and byproducts you can get from pine tree, even just from its uh, bush medicine uses. Like I have a former colleague of mine. Um, who lives in Andrus, um, worked with the BNT for a number of years, who told us some secrets on what the, the pine sap could do for one's uh, virility and fertility. So, Interesting. And what the bush doctors, what the bush doctors over there will do for you. Take the pine sap, melt it down in some, some hot water, and drink that as a tea. And I don't know, this statement has not been evaluated by the FDA, nor the <laughs> uh, Ministry of Health. But yes, you you all, you have those traditional medicine, uh, traditional uses of pine mm-hmm. um, from the sap and, and other products. And I know I, I read another use um, of our pine was to do charcoal. And I remember you and I had a conversation years ago about how the casserina tree could also be used for charcoal. And I think casserina is better for charcoal. No. I, if I were to say what's better versus what worse, I would say ecologically the lower hanging fruit would be to use casserina as a source of fuel wood. Um, one, just because of its abundance. Two, it's already a plant uh, species that's identified as part of the National Invasive Species Strategy to be eradicated from the Bahamas. So by mandate, we should be um, taking care of the casserina problem. Um, it's in abundance. It's pretty much everywhere. And so just in terms of you know, it being a low-hanging fruit, I would always promote castorina over pine. Right. Not to say that charcoal cannot be utilized from pine. Um, however, there are other uh, products you can get from the pine tree which would have more value um, and, I guess, less ecological consequence by removing the pine. Because what you have now is you do have people that make pine, make charcoal from pine um, and also other coppice species. Um, and in doing so, they're damaging that habitat because of improper practices. So right. whether there's wildfires that are burning out 
they're clear cutting large areas or they're utilizing hardwood species that could be better uh, better used in, in, in the market rather than for charcoal. So right. I would definitely promote castorina for charcoal and it burns um, it burns well when green um, and it's a, it has a high caloric content so it can burn dead on. Oh nice. Dead, dead on. That's that's good to know. And I know one of the things um, just in the, you know, the whole thought of the 100K tree planting initiative that the sustainable lifestyle is um, leading for the Bahamas, how would yep. one plant a pine tree in their yard? <laughs> Do oh, I yeah, grab a cone? Get, yeah, it's, um, you got to know the technique to germinate those, uh, I guess the, I want to say the seeds, right. germinate those spores, right? I um, think I have a picture. I, while you talk about and it. So, yeah, so I am not a uh, pine germination expert. However, the good folks at the Leon Levy Native Plant Preserve, uh, they may have been experimenting with pine. Also, our good friends in Turks and Caicos, we shout out Naki. Uh, I know he's been working along with the Q uh, Royal Botanical Gardens on a reforestation project for uh, Turks and Caicos, which utilizes uh, native stock and propagating um, native pine for their reforestation efforts. Mm -hmm. So maybe we need to bring Naki on here one day and let Naki do a uh, pine germination uh, planting workshop. Um, but definitely once you get it germinated um, and you find the appropriate habitat for it, and once again, if you live in an area where there's pine around, then that's a good sign. Uh, Is that a good picture um, of it? You, know, you got a picture? Is that a good one? Can you see it from the... Let me turn it to you. <laughs> I will forward it to you. Well, for the people. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what the success has been in uh, trying to transplant, find saplings or seedlings to, like, to dig them up out of the ground. I know they do have a top root when they're young that you have to be careful of that if you sever that, that tree won't survive. Right. And so it would, it would be through germinating um, some of the propagated material from cones and then making sure you're planting that in the appropriate location. That's true. You did mention that it needed to have a freshwater lens. So it's not similar to like the infamous banana tree that will shoot that we talked about where you can just kind of keep watering it or is it something where the roots have to be able to go down into the ground and reach this fresh water? Well, if you just think of their natural habitat, where, where they grow, um, that when, if you think of a cone that falls and let's say a small plant starts to germinate, uh, when that initial top root goes down, that's gonna hit water within about six to eight inches of the surface. Yeah. And so it doesn't need a deep um, root system. So if you're in an area where the water table is high, that'll probably benefit it. Um, um, however, make, and also what you're watering it with is a big thing, so that's a whole other day of talk but when you plant um, when you're growing in the yard whether it's you're doing native trees or you're doing a garden or whatnot your water is important and so whether or not you're using city water that has high chlorine in it um, or you have your house on some sort of filter that's balancing out um, those those elements out of the out of your water supply mm -hmm. you some people have plant stuff and they're trying to figure out why their plants don't live or thrive and it could just simply because the water you're using from your house is too high in one of those elements. And it's usually, usually chlorine is one of them. Um, 
And so the same in the same tone, if you're using well water, um, be sure that your well is not salty or brackish. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you live in a neighborhood that's near to a coastal area that's been um, kind of oversubscribed in terms of people using the freshwater lens or had uh, saltwater, seawater, saltwater or seawater inundation in that area. A lot of those wells have gone salty, and so you're watering your plants with salty water. And so if you want to grow something in your yard and you seem to be having trouble um, getting things to catch, one of the things you can check is your water. You can do a simple water test um, of your water. You know, Aquaviva does it. Some of, uh, there are a few other labs that do it. Hmm. Other than that, catch your rainwater. Make sure you have your bucket out and you've yep. got a system and you have your cistern where you can catch your rainwater. Because the rainwater is always the best. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like just catch rainwater um, to help make sure you have the actual right environment. Um, and I see two questions, so we'll jump to that because I know we're a little over. Um, the first one was asking um, native trees that you can put in place of Casarina. Um, I if you could just name two good replacements to save time. So, so if we think about it, we're, we're probably thinking about a tree that's as big as Castorina to provide shade and some aesthetic on the beach. So in terms of our native plants, there aren't very many in that coastal environment that's going to get huge. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get... Uh, sea grape trees that grow up to 30, 40, 50 feet tall and wide that are huge. I've seen them in Cat Island. I've seen them in, in, uh, in Long Island and in, in parts of Eleuthera where sea grape trees can get really large in a coastal environment and provide shade. Um, other than that, other trees that are native that you could use. So you have like the, uh, what's called Cordia, the Geiger tree, has a nice orange flower. That'll get tall enough to give you some shade. Uh, you have seven-year apple. Um, those at a mature stage would be tall enough to give you some shade. Um, I have some of the other species that grow in coastal areas that um, provide shade, but they're not native, but they're not invasive. But so you have like Orchidia, uh, poor man's orchid that, that grows in coastal areas. Uh, you have um, seaside maho. Um, I think there's a native there's a native variety of that. It's in the Malvasi family pretty much a seaside hibiscus. Um, you have uh, coconut trees, which some would say are native just because they're everywhere in our region. And they're tropical. Uh, they're <laughs> and they're tropical. They're technically not native to the Bahamas, but we call it tropical, so coconuts um, would be a, a good a good option. Um, other than that, um, you're not gonna get very many large shady trees out on that that foredoon. Right. Um, once you get behind that four dune and you start to approach a coastal compass, then yes, you're gonna get you know you're gonna get things like large Joe Woods. Um, what is that? Cedaroxalon uh, americana. Uh, I can't remember the name of that. Um, but as you get into the coastal compass and the bursaras or the gabalamis, those provide shade down to coastal areas, but those will probably be behind that primary. So awesome. So the next question is from Letitia Gibson. I think you and I both know her very well. Um, so <laughs> well, I feel like this looks like a doozy. Um, so the question says, 
One, is there any technology you'd recommend to process castorina wood for possible lumber use and making handles for handheld tools? I've heard the wood is very dense but splits easily when it's dry. I also know the Island School incorporated some lumber from their castorina pine into their infrastructure. So how feasible would it be to use this wood for lumber and how stable would it be? It's like a... So how feasible yeah. and how stable when it dries? Hmm. Yeah, so you have to work it when it's uh, when it while it's wet, uh, for the most part. Depending on what you're using it for. So if you turn it on, you turn it on, they would use uh, castorina for light posts or utility, utility poles. Okay. Um, so the the cracking that happens when it dries is usually cosmetic for a large enough uh, portion, and so it wouldn't be good to use it as finishing wood. Uh, but definitely for like rafters or fence posts, uh, uh, railings for staircases, things like that. So if you want to turn it into a post, you would get a wood lathe um, and you would turn it. And so, you know, you get these large machines, you take a chunk of wood, it spins it, and you hold a little sharp uh, tool into the other numbers, different shapes and sizes to create different patterns. And this is how you could like create a baseball bat and things like that. So okay. you can create posts and fence posts from the wet wood. Um, if you just use the, the full trunk um, while it's wet as well, you can put that on a, on a sawmill or on a circular saw for planks uh, to create benches and signs right. um, and rust, rustic furniture. And sculptures. Uh, and sculptures. For our artists yeah, out so, there. Yes, we've watched Antonius Roberts create a number <laughs> of wonderful sculptures with just a simple uh, arborist uh, chainsaw and a, and a piece of casserina trunk. Um, so your basic, your basic woodworking tools. Um, what was the second part of that question? Um, so it just it noted that Island School incorporated lumber into their infrastructure. So just how feasible and how stable right. would that industry be? Right. So, you know, it may be an industry that's more of a you know, subsistence industry that people locally just want to build in more traditional means using wood. Um, you'd have to probably bring a carpenter on to describe uh, the, the difference in building with, with castorina versus, let's say, um, Abaco pine, and so, right. or Bahama pine. So you'd find houses on Andres and Abaco um, that would have been built from the pine there many years ago that is still standing up today. Um, so. If you wanted to compare using uh, castorina versus Bahamian pine, I would go with using Bahamian pine to, to build your houses um, in terms of the structural integrity. Once again, I'm not a carpenter, but I know that I've seen some pine some pine houses standing for a long time once they've been treated well. Um, the castorina wood, it's still strong. It's still useful. Uh, it's just maybe not something you want to put on, uh, you know, as the yeah. facade of your house. Yeah, let's leave it for the charcoal. <laughs> but, and you know, and I would totally do uh, Mrs. Shelley Camp Woodside at Injustice if I don't note that. And I'm going to try to say it's sort of verbatim because she always would caution this when people would come up with this idea of, and I agree with her, so let me say that as well. It's not, not, I'm throwing her under the bus for any of these ideas, but you never want to try and use something like an invasive species to start becoming an industry because your purpose to create that industry is to get rid of it. And once you've gotten rid of all the casserina, you don't want it to now become a problem where people are like, oh, ah, we need to plant more casserina again. And then you, you begin this vicious cycle of needing to keep growing casserina to keep this industry going. So I like that you said subsistence would be best because then it's small scale. People do what they want with it. 
and um and which actually great it segues into Letitia's other question about what message would you have for persons and groups that want to use Casarina pines as hedge plants on their properties if they manage to prevent the tree from going into fruit should they still remove it from the property and what's the best method of getting rid of these trees so yeah I, um Casarina not only in the Bahamas, if you go to South Florida, it's used as a landscape tree. Uh, it decorates the roadsides mm-hmm. and sidewalks and things like that. Um, so they, uh, it, it's useful as a as an ornamental tree. It has a nice look. In the Bahamas, it's not necessarily a roadside plant intentionally, uh, but you do find that people use it as a hedge in their front yards. I personally don't mind the hedge because uh, by principle, that's it get trims enough, trimmed enough to maintain that shape to prevent it from going to flower and prevent it from going to seed. So those who have their nice, you know, three, four foot Casarina head, I ain't hating on you. Everything cool. <laughs> but I I would I would probably pay attention to the big tree across the street from you on the beach before I worry about your head. Right. Now if we've gone across the old Bahamas and wiped out every single one in every coastal environment and now only your head's left, <laughs> now maybe then your head's gone, right? Uh, Definitely. But when it comes to castorina, it's just about when you harvest it, you try to harvest it before it goes to seed so that you're not spreading seed or uh, you don't want to harvest it or cut it down while it's, in, while it's seeding because then you're essentially going to spread the seed further. Um, and... <clears throat> Um, you could use a herbicide to prevent it from stump sprouting. And so you can have um, a number of methods of putting that herbicide on your tree. You could use something called a hypo hatchet. It's pretty much a hatchet with a little squirt attachment to it. So when you <laughs> strike the tree, yeah, it injects some of the uh, herbicide into the tree and it do a certain number of hits and then they'll put enough herbicide in it. This sounds like a Mortal Kombat weapon. Like, what? (laughs) Um, And you, there's another one where you drill an angle down into the bark and and then you pretty much inject some of the herbicide in there and seal it off with wax or you just shave down the whole tree um, and on the flat surface you apply the um, you apply the herbicide and that should help to uh, prevent it from stump sprouting because it is a prolific stump sprouter. Prolific stump sprouter. I feel like that was like a tongue twister just now. <laughs> but um, so I see we have another comment question um, from Ancelino, Dr. Ancelino hey. Davis. Uh, he says, I feel you can never wipe out an invasive species like Casarina, lionfish, or iguanas. We need the laws to prevent moving it and disturbing it. And where can I get a hypo hatchet and which poison to use? <laughs> and Leticia knows, yes, yeah, specifically green iguanas, guys. The green iguanas are the invasive ones, not the not the endemic. But just where can you get this hypo hatchet for the tree? You, you can go online <laughs> and find it. For, I think Forestry Suppliers is an online um, has an online presence where you can find all your gear for removing invasive species. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Lino, I agree. Uh, it's difficult to try to eradicate all. Uh, that's why. It has to be strategic, and you know you find those that are at the highest risk of either damaging the ecology of an area or just the ability for humans to to, to inhabit that area. Um, so for the most part, if there's a castorina tree, 
that's next to a power line and running over in between a water line and near a gas line, then that needs to get cut down before it topples over uh, right. because that's going to cause money for everybody if any of those utilities get disturbed. And, right. and that's just that's just a part of it. You have to uh, prioritize and, and be realistic about it. You know, what I find interesting, um, just to backtrack a bit, so I guess this can trickle into more of, I guess, botany in a broader sense. What you were talking about with this whole stopping the sea before it goes to flower or seeds, how do you do that again? Like, you just, you cut it before it sprouts? Or, like, how do you attack this tree to stop it from essentially, you know, being reproductive? Now, this is in the ideal sense, right? (laughs) Because this tree... Gonna, it's going to reproduce whether or not you come in to chop it down this week or next week. The tree would have probably already seeded and has thousands of progeny all over the island. So it's just a, a strategy, for example, you know, when you if you've ever removed Brazilian pepper from a property and Brazilian pepper, just like Castorina, is a prolific seeder. And, you know, when you look at it, it just has thousands of that red fruit all over it. And so it's that decision of am i going to chop this tree down now with all of these seed that are ready to go um and as i now drag it across the street throw it in the truck and then drive across nassau with it and then dump it at this other place that somebody might take it and put it somewhere else and i'm spreading more and more of the seed around or am i going to wait until this set of seed has just fallen beneath the tree where it's already crowded and you won't have the seedlings popping up and damaging this environment, damaging that environment further because it's already taken over, then that kind of decision. Or, you know what, I'm just going to wait till I'm going to make sure I go there and there's no flowers on the tree. And, and, and so it's looking at it from that, that angle. You just don't right. want to be spreading unnecessary seed all around. Yes, that's, I think that's a life lesson for humans as well. Nonetheless, being <laughs> <laughs> men. Nonetheless, um, I just, <laughs> sorry, definitely. Um, one of the things that I think is also something that I wondered that we could maybe give to the public besides jokes, how could a person, just as a regular person by themselves, obviously before pre any initiatives begin, because like you said, it has to be strategic, how can they maybe remove efficiently invasives off their property? Like... Well, I, first, it's, you know, people need to know that these plants are invasive. Um, so, and that's the first thing. I know that the number of nonprofit conservation organizations that have been working throughout the years to increase the knowledge of the impacts of invasive species um, on our ecosystem. Um, actually, when you mentioned the, the uh, eastern road trees being chopped down, I was reading a lot of the comments that were being put on a Facebook thread, and you found that the, the dialogue was pretty balanced, and it was balanced by those who had a emotional or an aesthetic attraction, uh, attraction to that tree, um, and then those who were educated on the impacts of invasive species, and it created a dialogue. And once people have a dialogue, I think that's the first step. That they're not being attacked. That, right. Oh, because they don't know that this is invasive, or they know it's invasive, but they still like the shade that the castorina tree gives. Hey, you can't blame them. You know what? Not everybody wants it in the bracing sun all day on the beach, you know, right? Somebody no, just wants, botanists. Some want 
so you know, so you have to understand that there's a dialogue there and that there's a human component to it. Um, other than that, uh, places like the Preserve have done a great job putting an online forum on yeah. that you could that anybody can pull up and they can just type in the common name of the St. Casarina and they can see what it looks like and learn its habit and things like that. Um, the f- department, the forestry department, have also put on a number of initiatives. The sustainable tree uh, campaign. Uh, I've all been talking about this discussion of invasive versus native. So right. I would say get involved and just kind of get in the discussion. And once you learn about it, the simplest thing is if you live in a coastal area or if you go to a beach and you're walking down the beach and you see a seedling, just pull it out. That's that's one there of the first things. Because we can go and chop down all the big trees and we can spend the next 60 years chopping down all the big trees. But there'll be there are hundreds of thousands of seedlings that, that are right under that big tree, essentially mm-hmm. in that same habitat that don't get the same attention as a big tree. So right. you're do your part, pull up, pull up the little ones. There you go. That's, that's yeah, that's really good. When you're picking up the litter from the beach, pull up the little Casarina there saplings. You. Right. There you go. So, oh, and I guess we'll touch on this last point. I mean, we're a little over anyway, but I was just curious, and, and this just kind of popped into my head maybe minutes before this call, in the same vein of the whole climate change thing. In your opinion, based on what you know or what you can kind of um, hypothesize or in that sense, when it comes to Casarina pine versus our native pine and the effects of like climate change, who do you think is, is more likely to be more resilient? Hmm. Right. It, it was just well, a very curious question. Well, this leads into the that bigger discussion of the impact of climate change on ecological habitats. Mm-hmm. So let's just let's just take one example of it. So we said earlier that uh, pine, uh, the pine ecosystem is sensitive to saltwater, right. seawater inundation, or increasing salinity. Mm-hmm. Um, it's conceptually, as the sea levels rise, right. so will the groundwater um, be impacted by the salt water in the ground pushing the freshwater lens closer to the surface. Uh, the closer it gets to the surface, the thinner it then becomes. And conceptually, there'll be a point where the, uh, the freshness of the lens is impacted and starts to become a bit more saline or hypersaline or salty uh, just due to the rising of sea levels around. This is outside of seawater inundation and so forth and so on. Right. So let's say that happens and now the pine, they in a particular area, they're not happy because uh, they're sitting in salty water, they'll have some dieback. Um, where you find dieback happens, it presents the opportunity for either A, the coppice forest to jump in and say, we'll save you. <laughs> we will. We shall grow forth our gabalamis and our pigeon plums and poison woods and we shall grow a canopy and we shall blossom into what you've been suppressing us from, right? Um, or that that habitat is so degraded that the coppice forest is not able to replenish that and then you have invasive species that say, you know what, I actually I actually can thrive there. So whether that's going to be the castorina or the melaleuca or the Brazilian pepper, um, there's any number of, of species that will take advantage of that opportunity. And that's what it is. They're opportunistic and aggressive. Yep. So for climate change, if we see that habitats are going to be impacted and habitats that get impacted potentially will be left devoid, uh, that presents an opportunity for the spread of invasive species. 
Uh, and we're not even going into the other, oh, yeah. um, I guess, factors of climate change that may increase the temperatures, the, the, the vigorousness yeah. of how the, the needs of a species grow, or how they spread, or things like that. That's just one example of habitat dieback and invasive species moving in as a result. And you know, and I think, and that just makes me think about how big of a problem climate change really is. I think. And that might even be an idea for either the next episode or another episode in the future. Because I know people talk about, oh, global warming. No, it's not just this global warming. We've moved away from that term because it essentially is this climate change where you have extreme temperatures, extreme storms, you have sea level rising, and you have all these other things happening that have almost like this chain reaction, you know? Like just as simple as sea level rising, no one would ever think to say, oh, well, so that means salt water is going to get into the fresh water. And, and you know, with these temperature rising, that's why hurricanes are getting worse. And it's, it's so many things, you know, to think about when it comes to that. And, and I, when I asked that question initially, I hadn't even thought about sea level rise. I just was thinking about, oh, well, it's going to get hotter and colder. Like, how are the trees going to survive that? But it, it does open up that topic of we really need to become more conscious about it. Um, yeah, I, and, my blur. And I, think, I think one of the things that, um, that I guess in my becoming aware of, you know, climate change or what's happening in the Bahamas or what's to happen, a big part of it is understanding what has happened in the past and not only in terms of ge geologic timelines for the Bahamas, but also for the planet. And you understand that the planet, that the cycle is, that the cycles of the planet has gone through um, over the millennia. And it, it, I don't know, you, you hear people say, oh, the world is going to come to an end. Um, I, I, I don't kind of can say the world's going to come to an end. It's that this planet is going to change, and there are those that would need to adapt to the change that the planet is undertaking. And we've seen it happen at different cycles before in our past, and both uh, man and beast alike, uh, if they want to survive, they'll have to adapt. Mm -hmm. and we just put it that. Yeah. And you know, and one of the things that I had learned over the years is something that people don't really think about because when it was said to me, it was just like an aha moment. Humans are the only animals that do not adapt to their environment, they rather change their environment. So people always think immediately when you talk about evolution, oh, you know, people coming from apes, when really it's this this constant adaptation to adjust to your environment like and that's the survival of the fittest and that's where if you can survive these hotter temperatures you're most likely to survive in the future and then man humans just we gotta get our get ourselves together you know it just it makes me think of that like we constantly try to change our environment we're constantly doing things to the environment for the benefit of people like you said with the casarina a lot of people were upset about the cutting down because of the aesthetic of it and I would do also Ethan, Dr. Freed, and Injustice, if I don't almost kind of quote him, he, people always immediately think of plants and say, okay, which ones can I eat from? Like, what can this plant do for me, you know? And, I, and that always stuck with me because it's true. I mean, and even when I first met you, the first thing I would ask you is, which one of these plants can I eat? Like, what does this taste like? Can I sniff this? Like, what are the things that these plants can do for me? And I think people need to understand, and even if, if you want to go and take from, like, biblical terms, which I know a lot of the Bahamas does, we are supposed to be stewards of the earth. We're supposed to ensure that the earth is functioning well without us intervening to the sense that we're now damaging it. And I think that's a lot of what we've been doing because we've misinterpreted the fact that we're supposed to be ensuring that, you know, the earth is doing well and we're just kind of messing it up. I feel like I just had like a little speech just now, like a monologue. <laughs>
Any thoughts? I took your breath away. Look, I was, no, I was um, speechless. I, I, I agree. <laughs> I agree with all of that. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I agree with all that. And um, you were chipping in and out in there a, a little bit, but um, uh, what I would say, what you made me think of, is that, um, and this is why you know people have lived in tune with nature and cultures and societies have lived in tune with nature because you understand that survival is uh, intimately tied to nature um, and what surrounds us. And even though we put up uh, walls and we have technology and the so-called advancements of today, uh, it really just boils down to that simple connection with nature because if the power shuts off and the supermarkets shut down um, and we're, we only have our hands and the clothes on our back, then the things that are most important to you, you you're going to look around for it. You're going to look for water in the ground, you're gonna look for food, you look for shelter, mm -hmm. and all of these things are intimately tied with nature. Right. And so nature is not a commodity to be used. Uh, it is It is your, nature is nurture, it's your mother. Yep. You, should treat, you should treat it kindly because you, you live you live off of it. Without, without earth, you won't survive. Right. I'm a tree hugger, sorry. Definitely, and I think, and, and I like that we're like ending on a really good note about this because even you saying that, I think a lot of thing, a lot of times, humans, people, we forget that we are not separate from nature. So we always like to say, "Oh, uh, we need to do this for nature." No, we we're doing it for ourselves as well. We are a part of nature, so we need to ensure that, you know, it's it's we're a part of this ecosystem, this big beautiful planet. Um, Mark, thank you so much again. This is definitely, again, a beautiful episode. Unfortunately, we had all these technical difficulties, but I promise you, we're gonna have a proper call one day. I didn't forget that we want to talk about magical plants on one of these episodes, so I'm definitely going to get you on that for one of these. But do you have any final thoughts? Maybe something you want to say to the people about yes. everything. Yes, final thoughts from Mark Daniels. Oh, I think there's a lag. <laughs> no? Um, just, you know, just, I guess, just, I guess to make it applicable to invasive uh, versus native, um, you know, there are some people that would say that nothing is invasive and that nothing is non-native uh, because it's all one planet and that things move around from here to there and that it's all relative, that at some point something had to arrive from somewhere else, uh, whether that's people, whether that's animals or plants. That, And so uh, we... A plant may be uh, non-native or foreign or exotic, but that still doesn't mean that we can't love it, right? Right. And that goes for, for people too. So let's love all of our plants, all of our people, all of our animals, except the really uh, invasive ones. Yes, the ones that are extremely detrimental. But I agree. And thank you so much. And that leaves me with my closing sentence. As a country and even as a world, we oftentimes think that we are separated by water, but it is really what connects Yay. us. Thank you guys for tuning in to episode three of Siren Sundays. Hope to see you soon. It's going to be every third Sunday. I know a lot of people were like, when's the next episode? It's every third Sunday. So the next one will be, I can't think of the date off the top of my head, the next Sunday from now. So thank you guys for tuning in. Have a great Sunday. I think I'm trying to end.